Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. I am really excited about this conversation today because I have uh, with me uh, today Jonah Goldberg, who's a syndicated columnist. He's written a really uh, important book called Suicide of the West, How the Rebirth of Tribalism, Populism, Nationalism, and Identity Politics is Destroying American Democracy. And I read everything that he writes, and uh, often uh, I will find myself pondering things for days. Uh, and often I will find myself erupting in laughter uh, where uh, he's one of those writers where I will uh, find myself copying and pasting uh, sentences and texting them to uh, to friends and, and friends do the same with me. So I've been looking forward to this uh, for a long time. Jonah Goldberg, thanks for being with us today on Signpost. I'm delighted to be here. And um, I'm sure that some of that pondering I inspire in you is you asking what the heck is wrong with this guy, but I, I appreciate it nonetheless. <laughs> now, this uh, book, Suicide of the West, which is not the cheeriest title uh, in the world, but the content is actually much more uplifting than the title would suggest. And and, uh, for those who who haven't read the book yet, you're arguing that the situation that we have right now with all of these uh, norms and and so the way we live uh, together, that's really not normal in terms of the sweep of human history. How do you see sort of the situation we find ourselves in right now with the miracle, as you put it? Sure. Um, and, it, and you're right. It's a more uplifting book or it's not as dour as the title would suggest. What's kind of funny is given where things are on the right these days, among a lot of the sort of self-described nationalists and whatnot, their chief criticism of a book called Suicide of the West is that it is too optimistic, mm. uh, <laughs> which is just sort of a strange yeah. thing. You know, I, yeah. mean, I, I used to joke that I should have called the book, you know, why you should take a bath with a toaster. <laughs> and, I, and now I'm kind of wondering whether I was onto something. Yeah, so the basic argument I make in the book, well, first of all, I should say up front, you know, what I'm trying to do in the book is actually do something that I think is sorely lacking on the right these days. I'm actually trying to persuade people who disagree with me. Mm. And so I try to engage, you know, so there are some people, some friends of mine on, on the religious right didn't like the first sentence of the book because I say there is no God in this book. Actually, God sneaks back in towards the end, spoiler alert. But the the reason why I say that at the beginning of the book is that I, what I'm trying to do is make an argument on the, on the terms that the sort of secular left or progressives or whatever you want to call them 
on their own terms. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm emphasizing empirical data, uh, evolutionary theory, anthropology, science, and all of that, because I'm trying to persuade them that even on their terms, liberal democratic capitalism is, is, the, is, is this miraculous, wonderful thing. Mm. And so the part of the argument I make is that the prosperity that we have around us, the democracy that we have around us, none of this is natural. Man's natural environment is one of grinding poverty punctuated by an early death, either from violence or some bowel-stewing disease. Mm. And we have uh, almost all of the things that we associate with human progress have happened in basically the last 300 years. Mm. Well, you know, one of the things that I've noticed, uh, you mentioned sort of changing on the the right, and we'll talk about what's happening on the left in, in just a minute. But one of the things I've noticed on the right is uh, a great suspicion toward markets uh, yes. and, and even sometimes toward capitalism itself. And there's a point to be made because uh, you know one, one can easily say if you if you look at the things that often we think are bad in terms of just moral rot or societal uh, disintegration, a lot of those things are coming through uh, corporations selling us products. Uh, mm-hmm. So how would you respond to those who are saying maybe capitalism uh, isn't a good thing for people who care about moral values? Um, I am the first to admit, and I write in the book that capitalism presents challenges and the problem I would, but I think the problem that we have today is the way in which people are putting the blame on capitalism when there are other actors who are actually to blame. First of all, most of the things that some of the newfound critics of capitalism on the right point to really aren't examples of capitalism success. They're examples of statist excess. Mm. They're an example, you know, when we say, you know, capitalism doesn't single out the little sisters of the poor. Capitalism doesn't attack Catholic charities. Mm-hmm. The state does. And moreover, most of the sort of controversies of the day that bother us, they're, they're um, manifestations of illiberalism by illiberal actors on the left who are trying to impose their values on people. And that's not capitalism. But that said, look, capitalism is fantastic for dealing with the things that it's fantastic for dealing with. You know, it's like people say, what's, a, what's better, a fork or a spoon? Well, if you're eating soup, you know, spoons are better. Mm-hmm. If you're eating something else, forks are better. Um, the capitalism is very good at imposing efficiencies, at, at making people wealthier. We are in the greatest moment of poverty alleviation in all of human history. Um, and those are good things. But capitalism can't love you. Capitalism cannot, except in some rare instances, give you any sense of meaning or belonging in life. Those things, those things that truly matter, they come from things like faith, family, friends, community, uh, what Arthur Brooks calls earned success, you know, the desire to make a serious contribution and the desire to be needed by other people. And one of the great things that capitalism can do is it can create new opportunities for people to find institutions that they can find meaning and belonging in. Mm -hmm. But most of the problems that we have today stem from the breakdown of those institutions. Uh, The family is still a mess, particularly for lower, uh, the the more you move down the socioeconomic ladder. Uh, Organized religion, as you probably know far better than I do, has has real problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Civic society has real problems. And it's those things that we need to, that's the crisis we need to deal with. And sure, capitalism may not 
help a lot of those institutions sometimes, but statism hurts those institutions even more as the, from the historical record. Well, what about if you look at, you mentioned uh, some of these uh, declining uh, indicators, organized religion being one of them. If you look at um, at that, that picture we all see constantly of the town that used to be a booming manufacturing town, now it's empty, the coal town in eastern Kentucky or West Virginia, uh, where all the kids have left and the, 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 the community is really struggling. And now we're moving into a time where we only have increased automation, artificial intelligence, and so forth. Some people uh, bringing up the idea of a universal basic income uh, and so forth. How are we as a country going to handle some of the really disruptive changes that are coming when it comes to work and capital and markets without uh, completely fraying apart? I mean, that, that keeps me up at night. I, I, I don't know. I agree. It's a look. I mean, there are, there are some real challenges in there. Um, I, I particularly worry about you know the automation stuff in terms of driverless cars. When something close to one in ten Americans uh, have a job that involves moving stuff, you know, by a vehicle in one way or another, um, that can that's a very worrisome prospect in mm-hmm. some ways. Um, but I think one of the things that we need to do, and it's like that old adage about the truck that gets stuck in the Lincoln tunnel and no one can figure out how to get it out until some kid says, why don't you let the air out of the tires? Mm-hmm. Um, so many of the problems that we have um, today are made, being made worse by this desire to find national solutions to them. Mm-hmm. People don't really live in the United States of America. They live in Akron mm-hmm. or Shaker Heights or in you know some the suburbs of Dallas or Houston. And when we constantly talk about how these are national problems that need national solutions, what we're really saying is we want to give more power to a government very far away that most people feel is entirely unaccountable to them, that, um, and that, that fuels a lot of the populist outrage that we have today because people feel like the powers that be are these cold and personal forces very far away from them. Mm-hmm. If you push power down to the most local level possible, you give... First of all, you know who to fire because it's no longer these unseen forces like globalists or whatever. It's Mm -hmm. people with names and faces and they're people that you see and you know how to talk to. And I think that would be a big help. It would also be – and also the more power you get out of Washington, the more that power will be assumed by institutions that will fill in the void. And institutions that are close to the ground, that are close to the people that they're trying to help have a much greater effect in people's lives. And so I, I get part of my problem with the way, because you get these kind of questions a lot, and I agree with you entirely on the premise of them. There's some real challenges there. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, um, you know, part of the progressive project, going back to at least the Wilson administration, is to basically make the citizen a client of the state in Washington. You know, of the central government. Mm-hmm. And that was, if you read Barack Obama's second inaugural, it was a vision of a nation of Julia. So it was a vision of a nation where there were individuals and there was the state with no civil society in between. And that is one of the problems that you get when you start talking about nationalism or socialism and all these things mm-hmm. is that you are accelerating the process by which the mediating structures that give, give, uh, stability and meaning in most of our lives 
You want to flush them away and create a, a society of just individual, atomized individuals and a central government. And that makes all of those problems worse. You know, there are some people on the right, it's become kind of trendy, as you know, uh, these days for some people to say, well, that sort of uh, combination of freedom and markets and social conservatism, that's uh, zombie Reaganism. Uh, That's something of of another day of the 1980s and that really conservatism should move beyond that and, and really in some cases move beyond liberalism, meaning classical liberalism uh, here. Right. How does one respond to that argument when when really the argument is that this sort of fusionism is just passe? We, we've got to move on to something else. Yeah, I, I find this incredibly misguided on a number of levels. Um, first of all, this idea that is implicit in a lot of the writings that you see on this, in this stuff is that somehow the forces of of social conservatism, let's call it. You know, some, there are all sorts of different labels flying around when they're integralists and post-liberals and all the rest. Mm. But just say social conservatism. The idea that the social conservatives can lastingly capture the state and then impose their vision in some way, both on the market and on the culture, just strikes me as politically naive more than anything else. I mean, just they don't have the numbers. Mm-hmm. They don't have the political will. They don't have the consensus. Um, is it going to be a Protestant vision? Is it going to be a Catholic vision? You know, where, where, where's the fusionism there? And second of all, where are the numbers? Mm-hmm. You just don't have enough Americans who want that. You don't have enough religious people who want that because that's contrary to the vision of the founding fathers yeah. as well. And, Moreover, the system of liberalism, as my, my friend Charlie Cook of National Review points out, the system of classical liberalism really isn't supposed to come up with an answer about, you know, what is the highest good for somebody or what is, what is their reason for living or what is their purpose. It's to get people to stop killing each other. Yeah. Um, the reason why liberalism emerged after the religious wars in Europe and the Treaty of Westphalia was that people were just simply exhausted by putting disagreements of, of, of faith or disagreements of opinion to the sword. And so you started to get the emergence of, of theological and cultural pluralism that comes out. And that system, that rule of law, is a great friend of religious conservatives. Mm. And so one of the, so before I made that point about letting the air out of the tires, I really wish... My friends at places like First Things and elsewhere, you know, instead of talking about this sort of post-liberal takeover of the government in Washington, why can't they sort of like aim for Rhode Island? You know, <laughs> pick, pick some place small where as a sort of uh, theonomical sort of manifestation of just their numbers and mm-hmm. living in sort of good faith-based biblical way. They can have control over their lives. I mean, the the Amish are not looking to take over the government in Washington and impose their Amishness on the entire country. Why do we have to have this nationalist approach that says I should be freaking out about something stupid or heinous that someone is doing in Sacramento when we could be putting our energies towards actually improving people's lives by giving them the opportunity to live the way they want to live where they actually live? Hmm. Well, you mentioned this uh, hollowing out of that middle section between the atomized individual and the state. Uh, what do you think is going to be the end result? If you just look demographically at the numbers of uh, younger people who are identifying as no religious affiliation at all, uh, and that's 
that becomes steeper and steeper the, the further down you go uh, demographically. What's going to be the end result of, of American life? Are, are we, I mean, you critique in the book this sort of teleological enlightenment view that history is moving in this, uh, in this specified direction. There's a narrative that says we're headed to being Western Europe completely mm-hmm. secularized sort of society. Uh, do you sense that, or, or, or what, what do you think is going to be the future of religion as it applies to America? Sure. Well, so first of all, and not to sort of stir the pot, I don't think it's foreordained, so to speak, right? I, I don't, I, I, I've always had a problem with slippery slopes mm-hmm. um, and slippery slope arguments because in reality, you know, as my friend, the late Charles Krauthammer used to say, decline is a choice, that's why I have the word suicide in the title of my book. Suicide, you know, I don't want to belittle or, uh, you know, demean people's mental health crises and the rest. But suicide, by definition, is a choice. And we are making bad choices as a culture, as a people, as a government, as, as a nation. And we can choose not to do those things. But one of the things we have to do is get into the business of persuading people that we're going down a wrong path. Mm-hmm. And And I think that one of the... One of the reasons why we have all of this talk these days about the need to take over the government in Washington and, and impose a, a post-liberal system aimed at the highest good is because people want easy fixes. You know, if, if we lived in a country where all the pews were full, there wouldn't be this conversation. You wouldn't be talking about using the silver bullet of Donald Trump or the government in Washington to do things that you can't get done on the ground. And I, so I think... You know, a lot of times this country went in a remarkably different direction all of a sudden because of religious awakening. Mm-hmm. I think that is possible. There's also this ironic thing that demographically the people who believe in God and believe in organized religion tend to have more babies. Yeah. And um, the place where you learn your religion, like you learn your politics, is in the family. And so it is entirely possible that some of these trends change much faster than we realize. But it, it's going to require... Um, I, you know, it's going to require not just proselytizing, but persuading and that, and not just persuading that this, this denomination or that denomination is the true faith or the best interpretation or anything like that, but also just persuading non-religious Americans that religious Americans aren't scary or dangerous mm. and modeling good behavior. Um, and that's difficult because the secular culture is so bigoted and so hostile to organize religion. And I think that's a truly dangerous thing and contrary to what this country was founded on. But it's, it's a challenge. It, everything's a fight. It's a door-to-door fight. The fight for liberty begins in your backyard. The fight for liberty and, and, and morality begins with every generation. There's, as Ronald Reagan used to say, we're never more than one generation away from tyranny because we're not born with liberty in our blood. Mm-hmm. You have to fight for it. And that's true for almost all good things. Being a good parent requires work. You know, you have to train kids to become non-barbarians. This is an important part of life. Well, Jonah Goldberg, author of Suicide of the West. How can folks uh, How can folks track you down if they're interested in, in reading more about you and keeping up with you? Sure. Well, my Twitter handle was still until, for those who don't know, I've left National Review, which I love dearly, um, to start a new uh, media company with Stephen Hayes, formerly of the Weekly Standard. We haven't had a name yet for it, but you can find me on Twitter pretty easily. Um, I'm currently my handle is Jonah NRO. If you go to a website called Reagan 35X, you can subscribe to my newsletter. 
Or you could just monitor the police bands and eventually my name will come up. <laughs> Thank you, Jonah Goldberg, for being with us today. I'm re- really grateful for your voice and grateful to have this conversation. Great to be here. Thank you. This is Russell Moore, and you've been listening to Signposts. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.